0: Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for February 2011. I'm Jay Suarez, managing editor for the journal. This month, we highlight nine research papers. This includes a perspective by Kent Gates on the chemical and biochemical issues that arise upon replacing phosphorus for arsenic in DNA. Research from the lab of Thomas Burris describes the identification, of a chemical tool with implications on exploring circadian and metabolic functions. A study spearheaded by Richard DeMarchi reports the development of a superior peptide antagonist of a receptor involved in metabolic disease. Laura Sigatori and colleagues report a new therapeutic strategy for Gaucher's disease. Mark Viant, Christopher Bunce, and co-workers provide mechanistic insight into the anti-cancer activity of an anti-inflammatory drug. Research from the lab of Roberta King identifies two novel target sites for controlling Lyme's disease, and a study from Charles Hong's lab reports a small molecule that induces cardiac differentiation from embryonic stem cells. We'll also be talking to three of our authors, John Denou, Burr Settles, and Peng George Wang later in the podcast but now we'd like to highlight some interesting content you will find only on our website. To learn more about our authors of the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month we feature 11 young scientists, Li Kai, Wenlan Chen, Li Gu, William Hallows, Rahul Paul Chaudhry, James Patterson, Burr Settles, Brian Smith, Thomas Steislinger, Fan Wang, and Peng Zhang. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We're now joined by John Deneu at the University of Wisconsin Madison, author of the recent paper, CERT-3, Substrate Specificity Determined by Peptide Arrays and Machine Learning. Hi, John. Hello, how are you? Good. So your article in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology is focused on enzymes involved in regulating protein acetylation. Could you tell us a little bit about the role of acetylation in cells?
1: Well, there's really new evidence that's emerged that suggests that protein acetylation is a dynamically regulated process that can regulate the protein function, much like protein reversible
0: phosphorylation. So what exactly are sirtuins, then, the focus of your article, and what are their function in a cell?
1: So sirtuins are a family of proteins that function as protein deacetylases. So they remove the acetyl group from lysine residues on their protein targets. And interestingly, they use nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide as a co-substrate. NAD is a known metabolite that's critical for energy metabolism in all living things. So this is a unique example of a use of NAD as a co-substrate. And it generates a unique metabolite called O- ADP ribose.
0: So your current study published in ACS Chemical Biology focuses on identifying substrates for the dominant mitochondrial sirtuin, SIRT3, using a novel screening procedure. Could you briefly describe the screening procedure for us?
1: Sure. At the heart of the method involves the insulation of an acetyl mimic within a short peptide of roughly nine amino acids. So there's an acetyl lysine centered and Four amino acids on either side of that are varied residues. And we've constructed a library on functionalized cellulose. It's called spot library synthesis. So we have roughly 300 peptides on a given sheet of functionalized cellulose. And what we can do with that library is incubate the enzyme crt 3 which will bind to the peptides based on their ability to be deacetylated. Although they're not deacetylated in this particular reaction, we just simply measure the relative binding affinity of hundreds of peptides in this particular library. Now, we equate the strength of binding with the potential of that particular peptide sequence being a good substrate for deacetylation. Now, the peptide libraries are visualized using a similar kind of analysis to that where people run western blots. You simply take an antibody against that protein and develop and react it with a secondary antibody that has, for instance, horseradish peroxidase to do a chemiluminescence detection. So essentially detecting and quantitating the amount of light that's produced on each of those spots. So what we can do then is determine among those various peptides which are potentially good substrates for SIRT3, in which are poor substrates. And we can quantitate that analysis and use machine learning algorithm to tell us what are the properties of those peptides outside of the acetyl lysine that make it a good binder. And not only that, but we can use that information from the machine learning to predict peptides that would be potentially good substrates of SIRT3 without having queried them on the libraries. So the machine learning allows us to analyze fewer peptides on the peptide array and make predictions based on what we learn.
0: Okay, that was very interesting and it seems pretty comprehensive. So using this new approach, what did you observe with regards to mitochondrial sirtuin cert 3 substrates? Well,
1: with cert 3 I guess overall I think we've felt like we've established an effective unbiased method to identify potential substrates of sirtuins and Specifically, of SirT3, what this allowed us to do is to get a ranked preference of all lysine nine mer peptides. In other words, peptides that are nine amino acids in length that constitute the entire mitochondrial proteome, which is roughly about 30,000 unique lysine-containing sequences. So, we've used this information to investigate potential targets of SirT3, in fact, in mice or in mammals. I'll just give you an example of what we learned from one particular candidate that came out as one of the top hits in our screen, which was the enzyme called ornithine transcarbamylase. Ornithine transcarbamylase is a critical enzyme that occurs in mitochondria that helps detoxify our cells of ammonia. So it's really critical during amino acid catabolism, when we're burning amino acids, breaking down amino acids for energy, that those free amino groups are liberated as ammonia and that ammonia has to be detoxified as urea and ornithine transcarbamylase regulates that process. CERT three deacetylates OTC in response to things such as fasting, caloric restriction, so under conditions where you would expect your body would start to burn alternatives to glucose, such as fatty acids and amino acids. So by using our approach, ornithine transcarbamylase was one of the likely targets, and we followed up that study and provided both biochemical and physiological evidence that, in fact, OTC is indeed a target or bona fide target of sirt 3 and that work we just published in Molecular Cell, I believe it was last week, and that was all made possible through this methodology that we developed and published in ACS Chemical Biology.
0: That sounds great and congratulations on all those papers and thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: We move on to our next author, Burr Settles, a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon University, co-author and collaborator with John Denou and Mark Craven on their recent paper in ACS Chemical Biology. Hi Burr. Hello, Dr. We just spoke with John Denou regarding your paper on a novel screening procedure for identifying substrates for Certuin CERT three. During the interview he mentioned the use of machine learning. What exactly is that?
2: So machine learning is a subfield of computer science and artificial intelligence specifically that's aimed at improving the performance of some classifier or some computer program through experience. So it improves through experience or learns by example. So in this particular case, the examples we have were pairs of peptides and the scores that we got from these spot array screenings. And what we were aiming to do was to learn a computer model that could map peptides directly to those scores without even having to do the screen.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. So you developed algorithms to study binding trends for CERT 3 So what did this analysis find?
2: So we found, first of all, that it worked fairly well. The input to the algorithm was basically just an abstract set of features of a peptide, like position-specific amino acids and global scale parameters like hydrophobicity, or the tendency to form a beta turn. And just providing that information as input to the algorithm, we got over 50% correlation. So we were able to explain about 50% of the variance in actual spot array screens. So it worked fairly well, which was kind of a surprise for us and a good first step. The second thing that we learned was that when we peek inside the model and look at the parameters, they were fairly consistent with recent findings published elsewhere in the literature. So for example, a lot of the m- most important positions for determining whether or not this is a and 3 binding site, like arginine at the plus one position, for example, was consistent with a set of acetylation motifs that were discovered recently. And the model is also consistent with some other work trying to model the 3D structure, the crystal structure of sirtuins, when it binds to certain peptides. And that work is discussed in more detail in the paper.
0: So we're just curious as to what you're currently working on as a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon.
2: Well, at Carnegie Mellon, I'm not really doing any biology stuff at all right now. I'm working in the machine learning department on a system that is learning to read the English language by reading the Internet. And it's developing a knowledge base of facts, which does include a substantial amount of information about biology and biochemistry, but more at a conceptual level that can be read and expressed in language. But I hope to take some of the lessons that I learned working on a project like this to apply them for robot scientists or AI biologists and AI chemists to combine in the lab the intuitions and analytical skills of human scientists with kind of the tireless computational power of these kinds of machines.
0: That sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We move on to our final featured author, Peng George Wang, at The Ohio State University, Columbus, Ohio, author of the recent paper, L. Ramno's Antigen, a promising alternative to alpha-gal for cancer immunotherapies. Hi, Peng. Hi. So your article in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology is focused on developing a new carbohydrate antigen towards cancer immunotherapy. Why is there an increased focus on carbohydrate antigens in this field?
3: Well, now it's become increasingly clear. There are many antibodies in human blood that can bind the carbohydrate sequence. For example, human has an anti-human blood group antibody in the blood, which is reduced by our different blood group sequence. So therefore, it's become increasingly possible to use such a natural antibody to enhance the immunogenicity of a vaccine. So normally, the basic approach is to conjugate this unique carbohydrate sequence with a vaccine then in vivo, the nitro antibody will bind the carbohydrate vaccine conjugate to form a complex. And then the FC receptor of the antigen-presenting cell will recognize this complex, take the complex into cell for processing and the presentation to give you a better uh, vaccine. In fact, many of these carbohydrate vaccine candidates are weak antigen. So this approach is especially used for the immunogenicity of a carbohydrate vaccine.
0: That's very interesting. So alpha-gal is considered to be one such antigen of importance. Why is this epitope so special?
3: This epitope is so special because our human has a large amount of anti-gal antibody in our blood. So potentially, we can make use of this antibody to enhance the vaccine activity. So the unique relations, actually, between alpha-gal sugar and the anti-gal antibody is like our human has anti-gal antibody, but we have no alpha-gal epitope. And then almost any other um, mammals have no anti-gal antibody, but have a large amount of alpha-gal epitope. So this is actually the main barrier between the transplantation.
0: In your manuscript, you mentioned that alpha-gal immunotherapy development is a challenge. So what are the underlying issues for this?
3: In the past uh, 10 to 15 years, there are many attempts to make use of this uh, large amount of anti-Gal antibody for enhanced uh, immunogenicity of a vaccine. However, one challenge we normally used is very different from human. The research has to use alpha-1T knockout mouse to generate high levels of anti-Gal antibody in the mouse to represent the human being. So that poses a major challenge to use this alpha-gal antibody.
0: So your article in ACS Chemical Biology presents an exciting new alternative to this alpha-gal antigen. Could you briefly summarize for us what this antigen is and what are the advantages of employing this new epitope?
3: Yes. In the past few years, research such as Guildleaf and Baldwin, they use a carbohydrate antigen array to screen the human serum, and they found actually a number of unexpected anti-carbohydrate antibodies exist at a very high level in human blood. And actually this anti-model l ramino is a such an antibody. So therefore, in our work, we found that the wild-type mice has a low levels of anti antibody but with the ramino protein conjugate as a vaccine we can induce a high levels of anti-ramino antibody in mice so at this stage the wild type mice is very similar to human in terms of anti-ramino antibody so therefore the wild type mice can replace the alpha 13 guilty knockout mice as a animal model to test the effect on uh, how much the Ramino can enhance the immunogenicity of uh, any vaccine. So the advantage of L-Raminol over alpha first, first, Ramino is a monosaccharide. So it's uh, much easier to synthesize, to conjugate into uh, a number of vaccines. And the second, for Ramino, the Ramino enhanced uh, vaccine, we can use the wild-type mice to do the animal testing. And in addition, in human serum of all age group, actually the levels of antiruminal antibody is higher than the anti-GAL antibody.
0: That's very exciting, and we look forward to your future research, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We continue to describe chem glossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is proteostasis, which refers to the collection of biological factors such as conformation, binding interactions, subcellular location, etc., that control the concentration of different proteins in a cell, usually through transcriptional and translational changes in response to environmental flux. For more information on the use of proteostasis, please refer to the article by Laura Segatori's lab in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.